Our scripture reading today comes from Revelation 27 through 15. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when I was in college, uh, I had to do a little project for one of my classes. And I actually got to go around and interview people about why they believe what they believe. So it was was a sociology study um, around religion. And so I got to interview people of all kinds of religious faith and backgrounds, including uh, atheists and agnostics. And uh, it was a really, really interesting project. Uh, But one interview has always stood out to me as I've looked back on that moment in my life. I was meeting with an agnostic, and he knew I was a Christian, and and I knew he was an agnostic, and he was very, you know, we were very cordial and polite, and it was a great conversation. And when we finished, I turned off my tape recorder, I was recording all of these, and I was putting my things away. And I'll never forget this, he kind of got my attention, looked me in the eye, and asked me, do you really think someone like me is going to hell? And I was like, (laughs) just taken aback by this question. And he put it so starkly that I, I felt really unprepared to answer. And I think I said something like, hey, I, you know, I believe that anyone who, who willfully rejects Jesus' offer of salvation, um, you know, is, is, you've rejected it. You know, there's, there's no gospel of good news for you if you say no to it. Something I fumbled, you know, just like I just did now. I, I didn't do a great job. And he smiled because for him, my answer in some ways didn't really mean anything because he didn't believe in anything that I believed in. Uh, But as I left, he said, I just don't understand how anyone could think a person would deserve something like that. And I think it was a good comment. It was a good observation, one that that requires a response, I think, from Christians. So this sermon today is on the final judgment. Uh, It's on this Christian teaching uh, around the eternal destiny of human beings. Uh, The truth that at some point, ready or not, we will all stand before our Maker and we will give an account of our lives. And this is the biblical understanding of the final judgment. And this passage in Revelation is one of the key texts to how we've understood the final judgment in Christian history and doctrine. And I would add that, like my story shows, this is one of the most controversial things Christians believe, especially to modern Westerners. You have to remember that for most of our culture, we don't like the idea of judgment, at least on its surface. Uh, We don't like the idea of hell, this place of eternal separation from God. And perhaps if you're listening, this is one of the reasons you doubt your faith 
or maybe you even doubt the goodness of God whenever this is talked about. Uh, or maybe you, uh, this is one of the reasons you wouldn't consider Christianity in the first place. And if that's you or it's someone that you know, I, I want to talk in particular to you today. There are a lot of details in this sermon or in this text, I should say, uh, that we could spend a lot of time talking about, including one of the most uh, controversial parts of the book of Revelation, which is to understand the millennial reign of Christ. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's okay. Uh, but if you do and you were really hoping that I was going to spend a lot of time in this sermon on that topic, I'm going to disappoint you more, even more than I normally would. <laughs> uh, I thought long and hard about it. Ultimately, I think it's more important to talk about this basic belief that so many struggle with uh, than it is to take time on a secondary issue uh, that is essentially an in-house debate between Christians. So with that said, we did talk about the millennium and other details in our final episode of Nothing Else Is On that was recorded last Monday. It's on our Leewood Facebook page if you want to check it out. We, they do, uh, we did go into more detail on the millennium there, so check that out. If you brought your Bible, uh, turn to Revelation 19, and there are three things here basically I want us to talk about today. What's the good news about judgment? What's the bad news about judgment? And what's the best news about judgment? Okay, so let's take a look. So first, what's the good news about judgment? So in so many ways, if you've been with us throughout the book of Revelation, John's apocalypse is answering this basic question. Okay, what, what about judgment? And if you were to go back and read through all of the chapters we've covered uh, from uh, early on to now, you'd notice a pattern, which is that almost everything John is seeing is preparing him for the physical return of Christ to reign on earth and the final judgment that rids the earth of all evil. These have been two major themes throughout the whole book. So here in Revelation 19, same thing. Since we last looked at this book, John sees a vision now of Jesus's return, like a rider on a white horse. That, and just like in chapter one, this is a conquering Jesus. His eyes are aflame. There's a sword in his mouth and he's not messing around. He defeats the beast and the false prophet from chapter 13, who deceives the nations and throws them into a lake of fire. That's chapter 19, verse 20. And then Christ reigns for 1,000 years on earth. Some people understand that number to be symbolic, some literal, some kind of in between. Check our Facebook post for our thoughts on that. Then Satan, finally, the enemy from the beginning, he's released from his prison he gathers once again the enemies of God to wage a final battle against Jesus and his kingdom. But he's defeated, and he too is thrown into the lake of fire. That's chapter 20, verse 10. Then John sees a great white throne, and that's what we read earlier, verse 11. And essentially, John sees every human person for all of human history stand before their maker and receive one of two eternal destinies, either to the new creation with Jesus and the Father, that's chapter 21, or to the lake of fire with Satan. Okay, that was a lot of imagery. How in the world is this good news? Let me, give you, let me actually give you a couple reasons why. It is good news. So the, the first is that judgment is good news because it means life makes sense. Judgment means life makes sense. This is rarely talked about or thought about, but without a final judgment, uh, life is completely meaningless in any objective way. Think about it. We all live in anticipation, even in this really vague sense of some kind of approval or well done 
or trophy at the end of our lives. We long for, right, someone to say you, you lived well. Or, and equally opposite, we live, in constant, we live in a constant state of fear, if we're honest, of a rejection or a failure or an unworthiness at the end of our lives. In other words, we are looking for a judge on the bench to tell us if we were good people. Were we good parents? Were we good employers? Were we good neighbors? Were we good spouses? Were we good friends? Or were we not? I have never met anyone for whom that is not true. Even if it's never been consciously thought about, we live our lives like our decisions will ultimately matter. But if there is no judgment, if the bench is empty, then why try? What does it matter? There's really no reason to get out of bed in the morning other than sheer force of will. Because good or bad, right or wrong, and without a judge who even knows what those mean, if at the end of your days we simply close our eyes and there's no one there, it all just disappears. It's like it never happened. It doesn't matter. If ultimately there's no difference in the quality of life between this person and that person, then why do we try? But we all know so intuitively that that is not true. We know it. And if the conclusion is wrong, right, recheck the premise. There must be a judge and a judgment for life to make any sense at all. Otherwise, we're just deluding ourselves. So that's the first reason why judgment is actually good news. The second is that judgment deals with evil. It deals with evil. If you've ever been on Twitter or Facebook or other social media and you've watched a comment war between two people, I don't know if you've ever seen this, you know that inevitably someone or something will get compared to Hitler. Just, it's inevitable in every online conversation. It's like give or take 10 comments and someone's going to say, that's just what Hitler did. Or that's what a Nazi would say, okay? Now, <laughs> that's actually really important. Here's why. Because it means, again, intuitively, that we know there is a line, however vaguely defined, however ambiguously understood, that once crossed, there is no coming back from. We often define that line as Hitler. <laughs> Someone so malformed, so corrupt, and so evil that we know they must be eradicated, they must be gotten rid of, and if you invoke that name, you're naming an evil that must be judged. That's the purpose of that statement. We all know that if the world is ever going to be a good place, or in the Christian understanding, a place that God designed it originally to be, evil must be dealt with. It cannot be ignored. And there's a kind of evil in the world and in the human heart that cannot be coddled or reasoned with or tolerated. It must simply be cut out. It's like a cancer that will eventually destroy the whole body without intervention. As someone in our teaching team put it, and I love this, he said, if you had a loved one with cancer, would you want a doctor who was merciful to the disease? No. You don't want someone who is aggressive <laughs> with the disease. And while this may be a little abstract for some of us in, in the quiet life of an American suburb, remember, this is very concrete for John's original readers and for much of the world today. Remember, this apocalypse was written to a group of people who were already experiencing oppression and evil in ways that I don't think I can imagine. They're preparing to lose homes. They're preparing to lose loved ones. They're preparing to lose their very lives to an evil and corrupt government. Across the world today, just read the headlines. Unspeakable evil takes place every day. Evil that I don't even want to take time to describe right now. And you'd better believe judgment is good news for people experiencing it. 
It's good news. And by the way, one of the strongest deterrents to cycles of violence in the world is a strong conviction that there is a God and he will judge and make things right. If you notice, that is actually part of John's encouragement to believers to respond with grace. He says, because God will will set things right. He's the judge. If and when, you'll notice, humanity does not believe that and that we are in charge of of setting things right. This is when cycles of vengeance begin, and we all know how that goes. So here's the thing. Judgment, as, as strange as this may sound, is actually a part of the good news of the Christian faith. It's essential to our gospel, and it's something we long for as humans intuitively. We do. That's part of why God's plan for the world has to include judgment. Judgment for the evil one who wants to destroy God's good world, and yes, judgment for all who would follow him and reject God's offer of salvation. Judgment is a necessary part of this. But it is also a necessary part of our bad news. So it's part of the good news, but it's it's part of the bad news. So what's bad about the judgment? The second we name that there is a line which there is no turning back from, and we seriously examine ourselves, okay, not superficially, not comparatively, but deeply, we will see that same line running through our own hearts. And I know this quote is used a lot, but it's so powerful, and it speaks so powerfully to our moment. So Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he wrote a book called uh, The Gulag Archipelago. He was wrongfully imprisoned there uh, because of his political views during the Soviet regime. And he came to a startling conclusion spiritually while he was there. He, he wrote these words, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. Right? Most of us, when we think about judgment, we think about, get those evil people over there. He says, if only that were true. He says, the dividing line or the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? His observation is, the second I say they deserve judgment, I must say I deserve it. Even between himself and his captors, his oppressor, Solzhenitsyn, saw the truth. He knew that the difference between them and him was simply a matter of history and circumstance. Under similar conditions, could he become an oppressor? Could he become a man so callous that he could run a prison full of political dissenters and enemies? And the answer was, yes, I could. And this is basic biblical teaching that left on our own, we deserve judgment. All the way back in the Garden of Eden when our ancestors, Adam and Eve, chose autonomy over a relationship in the presence of God. We have been doing the same thing. And if you don't believe me, just take a minute and think about it. Is there a more dysfunctional relationship in your life than your relationship with God? If you're an atheist, right, you say, I have no relationship with God. Well, if you meet him, what excuse will you have for that? Well, if you're wrong, for those of us who claim faith, is there anyone that you lie to more than God or ignore more or dismiss more? Is there anyone you take advantage of more? Is there anyone you break promises to more? Even the most devout believer in God has to admit that this is our bent. In our heart of hearts, in our natural state, it's not simply that we disobey God, that we do plenty of that. It's that we don't want him. We don't want him in our everyday choices, in our private moments. There are a dozen things at any given time we would be sorely tempted to worship 
and give our lives to other than God. Money, power, pleasure, comfort, security, independence, happiness, health, lunch sometimes. On and on that list could go. There are moments we do not really want God, certainly not on his terms. And what Solzhenitsyn saw so clearly in his own way is that that subtle rejection of God that lives in every human person is the seed from which grows the worst evils, the most heinous oppressions and violence the world has ever known. It is at the root of Satan's deceit to want anything, even hell, over God and his rule and reign. Which is why, by the way, hell exists in the first place. It's a place where God's creatures must go when they want nothing to do with him who have ignored him and rejected him and, yes, hated him so completely that they cannot stand his presence at all. There's a lot of imagery around hell in the New Testament. Some of it's kind of intimidating. It's a place of fire, of darkness, of isolation. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think all of this is circling around one basic point. Hell is where God is not there. It's where his presence is absent, which means that all good things like love and friendship and, a, and, a, and a, a nice meal and simple pleasures and a sunset and poetry and art and music are no more because none of those things can exist without their creator. And if you don't want him, you won't get him. Remember all of the hardship and judgment in the book of Revelation. We said this really early on about how to interpret history in light of Revelation. All the hard stuff that happens in human history was in some sense for the purpose of repentance. God's strategy is to turn people away from hell by giving them a glimpse of what it's like and to turn back to him. But if we do not choose it, God will not make us. The final judgment is the moment our choices are ratified. I love how C.S. Lewis put it. He says, the final judgment is the moment where we say to God, either thy will be done, or God says to us, thy will be done. This is why other accounts of judgment just don't work. God's character demands that he respect our choice. Universalism, the idea that everybody gets to go to heaven no matter what, that doesn't work. God cannot and will not simply force us into his presence forever if we do not want it. That's abusive. Purgatory doesn't work. The idea that we're punished until we change our minds. <laughs> that doesn't work. That's manipulative. If our lives are to have any meaning and significance at all, there must be freedom to choose, to choose God or to reject him. And he will honor that choice. And this is an eternal choice. I know that's scary, but there's no hint here of what theologians have called like annihilationism, where if we reject God, ultimately he just destroys us. Hell is forever because God dare not destroy his image and he will honor the choices of his free creatures. Hell is where evil is contained. And it lives inside of us, you guys. We need to take that seriously. This choice, there's a temptation to this. So what are we to do? Okay, what's the, our last point. What is the best news about judgment? Remember with me that the only one worthy to open the scroll all the way back in the beginning of this book and this vision was not first and foremost a judge on a bench. He was the, the, the lamb who was slain. That image is the key to understanding the entire book of Revelation. And throughout the story of God and humanity, think all the way back to Adam and Eve. God has promised and has hinted that somehow he would judge evil and restore 
our love for him. He would do both. We couldn't do it, but he would. And so Jesus, the eternal son of the father, the creator and sustainer of the world, who loves you and me, was born of a virgin and suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That's how John puts it here. Not simply by pronouncing forgiveness, not by canceling the judgment. Okay, don't miss this. There are many false teachers out there who will tell you that we know God loves us because he says, I forgive you, and he moves on. That's not true. God does not show his love for us in Christ with cheap words and ignoring evil. He, does it not, he doesn't do it by canceling judgment. He does it by entering judgment. He takes it in our place. The difference between a believer and a non-believer, between a Christian and a pagan, or any religious belief for that matter, between heaven and hell itself, is that some of us are still living like we can pass that test on our own. Some of us are living like I'm going to get enough good points that will outweigh the bad points, and that our righteousness will somehow be enough, and that our judgment is still to come, and we await that day, however vaguely defined it might be. The difference, some of us believe that. And there are others of us who follow the Lamb, believing that our judgment that was deserved is not yet to come, but has already happened. And it happened to Jesus in our place. Christians are not better people. They are not smarter people. They are not wiser people. They are rescued people. That's the difference. We all deserve the bed we've made, Christian, non-Christian alike. I don't care what you believe. The only difference, as John points out, is that in that final moment, when all is laid bare and every evil thought and intention and every callous word and every betrayal and infidelity is put before us, is that some of us can point to the book of life and say, my name is written there because the lamb died for me. The gospel is that we can say to our judge in the moment of our judgment, but Jesus, and the doors are open for us. This is the best news. This is the offer in faith for anyone and everyone who's willing to choose the lamb and follow wherever he goes. And I wish back in college that I'd responded to this man differently. And it's how I kind of want to close this time too. If you remember, he asked, do you think I'm going to hell? Do you think a person like me is going to hell? I wish I'd responded with a question of my own. I wish I'd said, do you want to go to heaven? Because you can. You can guarantee that now, today, by trusting in Jesus. But if that sounds ridiculous to you, or stupid, or whatever, I understand. I do. You can keep trying to earn all the well-dones on your own. You can do that. But when you find that that doesn't work, when you realize you cannot do this, when the moment strikes you that life is too hard and you are too weak, try Jesus. He will not let you down. I wish I'd said that. And so I say the same thing to you. If you're here and you have not given your life to Christ, now is the time. There's no time but now. Do you want heaven? Do you want the life God has offered to you? That choice is here before you now, today. I want to close us in prayer. And if that's you today, I want to pray in particular for you. So let's pray. Father, for those of us who have trusted the Lamb, we are so grateful again that you've taken our judgment. You've looked at that divided heart in all of us and you said, I will solve that problem. I will deal with evil and I will rescue you. I can do both. 
through my son, Jesus Christ. Thank you. Help us as your people to share this good news, this best news, boldly, wherever you've called us this week. And I want to pray for those who maybe haven't accepted your offer. And if you're listening right now and you're praying, pray this simple prayer. Jesus, I want your gospel. Jesus, you are the Lord of the universe and the Savior of my life. And I give everything I have to you and everything I am to you.